and hi-fi and you are listening to 90.1 fm kpft houston up in America, KPFT, uh, Claire Dutre here with me, Bob Sanborn. And uh, Claire, are you ready for a big show? I am. I'm excited. A really, really big show. Uh, so a uh, couple of great guests, but we'll have our date of the day, the teaser today, date of the day, 49th. 49th. It's so obvious. Yeah. Texas. It could be anything. <laughs> Texas. Texas. Education, mental health, Because who's always, who's always 50th? I know we we bumped up a spot. Actually, sometimes fifty first when DC's counted. Yeah, so I think uh, you know it's it's something around that. So, um, and then we're doing our thumbs up, thumbs down today. We're doing a little bit on field trips, uh, and then some great guests. Paul Chavez is joining us. He's the senior supervising attorney. He's with the Southern Poverty Law Center, that great organization. And but Paul is uh, focusing on some of the Florida immigration stuff. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, and then we're going to have our very own Dr. Marcy Baez, our Chief Academic Performance Officer, to talk a little bit about Texas A-plus challenge with children at risk. Talking about how do we get better in our schools here in Texas. Uh, we'll be visiting with one of the interns at Children at Risk, Summer Sanders. Is, uh, I guess she's calling in today. Oh, she so is. looking forward to that. And then Linda Corchado, who is the Director of the Children's Immigration Network. Uh, looking forward to having her on to talk a little bit about things that are going on right on the river. Yeah, not great. No, not very good at all. So um, we hope that you'll stay with us for the whole hour. This is Growing Up in America and a product. Growing Up in America. This is a production of Children at Risk, the voice for the children of Texas, a nonprofit organization dedicated to research, public policy, law, and collaborative action on behalf of all of the youth of Texas. Claire the Way Dutra. Oh, new so, nickname every week. Yeah. So, and uh, so we're happy to have Claire with us as always. So thumbs up, thumbs down, Claire. Are you ready for it? I am. Let's get some music. So, uh, field trips. Did you go on many field trips when you were a kid? I did. I loved field trips. So, it was interesting to me to have this as a topic because, as a teacher, it is 5,000 hoops I had to jump through to try to get a field trip, which is interesting. Oh, really? Yeah. The main thing is the bus. Buses are quite expensive. And so. I know we're going to talk about the pros and cons, but the cost is really just where it's yeah. jabbing. You know, um, you know, I grew up in Puerto Rico, and mm-hmm. I, so I don't remember many field trips. But those that we had, we loved. But one of them was that Puerto Rico, interestingly, had one of the first nuclear-powered plants. Oh. And so we visited. They took so, a bunch of children there. <laughs> isn't that something? Great idea. <laughs> so, you know, I, I see with Oppenheimer being released, and <laughs> they talk about all the, you know, the nuclear tests that really spread a lot of radiation. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure taking a group of kids to the nuclear power plant, <laughs> you know, one of the first ones. Fantastic <laughs> idea. <laughs> so you wonder about the spidey senses. That's why. You know, <laughs> yeah. That's that. what got you here today. So thumbs up on this. Um, you know, I know that these days uh, field trips can be pricey. And so yeah. 
passing along the prize to kids. I don't remember ever as a kid having to pay for that, but maybe that's... Uh, I did, you know. but it was a 5 or $10 up front here and there. Yeah. And then also now they can um, provide lunches, but when I went, you had to provide your own. There was no option for free and reduced bag lunch. Um, yeah. So the cost kind of adds up a little bit. So it seems to me that uh, the thumbs up, thumbs down on field trips uh, is that if if you have to pay for it, obviously you're only going to benefit a number of kids. But overall, right. this idea of experiential learning, the idea of it's going awesome. on a field trip, it should be something that should be natural and something we do a lot with kids. And also well-connected. Don't just do one to do one. But I remember one of my most memorable ones, and all of us hated to go, was we went and planted trees because we had mud up to our knees and didn't want to just plant trees for all day in Louisiana's <laughs> sun. Um, but I just remember being so well-connected. And any day out of the classroom is exciting, and you have the community and you're just forced to communicate with your peers and grow together. Just and cool. don't diminish the importance of the bus ride, right? I mean, oh, when, yeah. <laughs> when you think about field trips, it seems like the bus ride is really one of the best parts of it, right? It so, is, it is. So on thumbs up or thumbs down, I guess we're both a thumbs up on field trips. How about the idea of kids having to bring their own money, uh, raise their own money? Uh, I get some of like the eighth grade field trips to Washington D.C. where they have kids oh, raise yeah. money, I think about but, that, that. but that shouldn't be the the uh, a barrier Limitation. right to going right. Yeah, I think uh, maybe even seeing school districts that do better partnerships, like with the NASA or with the museums. Thursdays are free, so I know our art department took a lot of kids on Thursdays and mm. took benefit of the free um, museums, and so when we can effectively use our resources, yeah. And, so thumbs, we're sort of thumbs up. I'm thumbs up. I don't we want to get into this. the big trips you have to fundraise for because that is a whole different. <laughs> I, d- I don't, I don't ever remember trips. doing any big trips, right? I guess well, Puerto Rico, it's hard. You know, where are you going to go? The Virgin Islands. It's yeah, just, like, just the nuclear power plants. <laughs> all you got. <laughs> that's, that's what you have. So that's our thumbs up, thumbs down. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our next segment, we're going to be talking with Paul Chavez, who is uh, with the Southern Property mm-hmm. Law Center. And we're going to be talking about some of the stuff that's going on in Florida, the anti-immigrant stuff. So coming up right around the bend, we'll be talking about that. You're listening to Growing Up in America, KPFT Pacifica Radio. You flip the script for the hell of it. Addicted to betrayal, but you're relevant. You're terrified to look down. Uh, Growing Up in America, Claire Dutre, Bob Sanborn here with you. Uh, Our next guest is Paul Chavez. Paul is the Senior Supervising Attorney with the Southern Poverty Law Center, the SBLC Action Fund in Florida. Paul, how are you doing today, man? I'm well. Thanks, Bob. Very good. Very good. Thanks for being on the air with us and on our program. Paul, there's... Lots of interesting stuff, interesting being in quotations, right, going on in Florida. And we're especially interested in this transportation bill. Uh, but what is the what is it like on the ground for immigrants in Florida today? Paul? Well, I think there's a, a sense of fear in yeah. Florida amongst the immigrant community um, with the passage of SB 1718 that includes the transportation section I think you mentioned yeah. it's caused quite a bit of fear. Um, folks are afraid to go to hospitals, afraid that they may end up in deportation proceedings. Senate Bill 1718 created a felony for transporting a undefined ill or ill-defined category of immigrants into the state. So that's, of course, caused fear, um, as it was intended to do. I'll yeah. say during the, the debates uh, during the legislative session, yeah. The bill sponsor made it clear that the intent of the bill was to dissuade people from migrating to Florida, to remove any incentives that somebody would move to Florida. You know, I just uh, I've, I've mentioned this on this program before. I was uh, in El Paso and uh, I was down by the church and talking to some of the Venezuelanos, the Venezuelans who had made the long journey uh, to Texas to cross the border. Some of them had their hearings scheduled for Florida and they were saying, hey, I don't want to go to Florida. Uh, it's an anti-immigrant place over there. And frankly, Paul, I don't know how Texas got a pass on it, right? Because I don't know if we're any better. But this bill in particular, it it seems a little scary. And at its worst, can it mean that if uh, 
if I have a relative who's come across the border and I decide I'm going to take them to their other relatives who are living in Miami, that I could be arrested if I'm if I'm going through Florida. Is that the yeah? Depending upon the circumstances, if, if the category of immigrants that would be transported is somebody who entered the country unlawfully and has not been inspected by the federal government since their entry. Yeah, which is really an ill-defined category. Yeah, itself. very ill-defined. Yeah, That's can not you... how inspection is used in the INA. Yeah, yeah. Can you actually elaborate? Sorry about that on that term inspection because I know in law it's considered more incoherent and vague. Sure. So the way immigration attorneys will talk about it, or the way the immigration judges would talk about it, um, and the way we see it in the Immigration and Nationality Act, according to the federal government, is generally something that happens at the border. So, like when you come back from vacation, you're inspected at the border as part of the um, as, as part of the process coming back in. So a lot of folks may have entered unlawfully, but then later obtained some sort of immigration benefit or status. Mm-hmm. They may have gotten temporary protected status. They may be seeking asylum, um, DACA uh, recipients, U visa, T visa, VAWA, Violence Against Women Act uh, visa holders could all arguably fall under this category of people who entered unlawfully and have not been inspected by the federal government. So that's part of the litigation. That's part of the constitutional challenge to that section of the law is that it's just unconstitutionally vague. It's incoherent and it gives no reasonable notice to people of what is actually being prohibited. Paul, what is, I mean, when we think about what's going on in Florida, I mean, I hear things about it's, uh, it's damaging the Florida economy, you know, that this bill has gone way too far. What's the reality of that? I mean, I know we're scaring a lot of immigrants, but what's happening for business owners and others in Florida? You know, most of what I have is anecdotal. We'll kind yeah. of wait to see what the, how the numbers kind of pan out. But it definitely seems to be the case. We have a, a great example is Representative Rick Roth, who gave a presentation to a group of folks Voted yes on the bill, but then begged people to stay. Right. Wow. So he's, you know, a representative that would, you know, accept our labor but not give us our dignity. Wow. And I think that's what people are, are feeling. Um, in the lawsuit we filed challenging that section of the law, we represent the Florida Farm Workers Association and nine individuals, all of whom have similar stories of the need to travel in and out of Florida. One of our individual plaintiffs works for a nonprofit in Georgia and frequently travels into Florida driving undocumented individuals or people with immigration status that would trigger the felony charge to immigration um, meetings, to, to Jacksonville to go to the USCIS. Yeah, thinking past this, Paul, how do you see Section 10 in the Senate Bill 1718 potentially influencing immigration policies further in Florida, but nationwide as well? Hmm. Well, hopefully this isn't something that we'll see spread. I think hmm. this is clearly unconstitutional. The second cause of action that we have, um, in addition to arguing that it's vague, is that it's actually preempted by federal law. So the supremacy clause of the Constitution says when a state law or a federal law conflict or if the federal law occupies the field in which a state law is trying to govern, the federal law takes supremacy. That's the supremacy clause. And so it's a clear – what I would say it's a pretty clear violation right. of a state trying to regulate or enforce immigration law, something that they, A, don't have the um, – ability to do so, um, both legal and as a practical matter, right? It's difficult to imagine police pulling somebody over and trying to unweave a passenger's immigration status. Wow, yeah. And we'll see a lot of people charged with uh, crimes with felonies, and we'll, we'll see how it, it, it pans out. The other reason is you can imagine the chaos that would be created if all 50 states started to implement their own policies. Right. Who can go into one state? Who can go into another? If they all decided to create their own definitions of documented, undocumented, inspected, uninspected, admitted, not admitted, lawful, not lawful, et cetera. Right. Not even the impact on other states, but looking at – I know in one of your comments you were talking about 
how in Florida it could lead to increased racial profiling of black and brown communities. Can you expand on what that might look like? Sure. I think that's definitely the fear, and that's something that we've seen with other anti-immigrant laws in Florida. A few years ago, SB 168 passed, and it, it, it resulted in increased racial profiling and reports of racial profiling. Um, the idea that police officers are going to be able to determine um, whether or not somebody entered the country unlawfully and has not been inspected by just following somebody in their car right. or approaching somebody, we know that's going to result in racial profiling. I mean, it's going to be difficult to choose. You know, people don't say that's why they stopped somebody or why they started to interrogate somebody. But we know who it's going to impact. Yeah. And are you hopeful on the both the Southern Poverty Law Center and other legal organizations' um, efforts in fighting back on this section? I am. I think this section is clearly unconstitutional. Um, we're going to be filing a motion for a preliminary injunction soon, um, asking the court to stop the implementation of that section while we continue the case. I mean, I think we have a great shot uh, at that as well. Paul, one of the things that um, I worry about, and I'm sure you do and your colleagues, is that even if this is illegal, Mm -hmm. it seems to have captured the imagination, right, of a lot of Republicans, uh, a lot of the xenophobic uh, community in terms of being anti-immigrant. Do you worry that there's going to be a number of states that may try to do things like this? in the near future, even though it's clearly uh, unconstitutional? I do. We've seen some of these anti-immigrant moves from Texas and and Florida kind of spread like a cancer to other states. It's definitely something we've seen. And as was the case here, there's politicians who want to be uh, flagged as anti-immigrant. They want to see that visibility. Governor Abbott. Yeah. yeah, they want that visibility. They want to be there. And that's true of DeSantis. He really pushed the bill. But this, the SB 1718 at large was his proposal prior to the legislative session. He pushed it during the legislative session at a big press conference when it passed, another press conference when he signed it, talks about it on the campaign trail. Um, mm-hmm. But, and this is, uh, this is yet to happen, but I suspect it will, He's going to ask to be removed as a defendant. Mm. I don't think he's going to want to actually defend this lawsuit because him and his office actually know it's unconstitutional. What they wanted was to be able to feed red meat to the Republican base and demonstrate those uh, anti-immigrant bona fides. What is it going to take to change sort of this anti-immigrant? I mean, it's clearly a minority, but it's a minority that has power, right, that's voting uh, that's anti-immigrant. I mean, what do you think it's going to take? Because it's seeming, you seemingly hear the business community say, "No, we we we're pro-immigration. We just need better immigration reform." Uh, you you see a majority of Americans basically, you know, let's stop being mean to these children and families along the border. Uh, let's not be mean to this. This is the group that builds our country. We see it as the future of our country. We, you know, as a country that's getting older, the only way to make it younger and to get taxes paid is to have greater immigration. We're a country that seems to do immigration better than most others. What is it going to take, though, for people to see some of the facts out in front of us, Paul? <laughs> I, I think you just relayed the message. <laughs> But but do you think there's a way to change attitudes? I mean, it seems like people know this stuff and they still want to, want to be xenophobic. Right. There is. You know, my sense is it's a matter of, of proximity, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if you know somebody, you know, you're, you're friends with or work with somebody in a mixed status family, you know, it's a lot harder to demonize people, you know, yeah. once you're actually familiar with somebody, you know, once you mm-hmm. realize that. The person at work is going through immigration process or their brother is or their spouse is. It's much more difficult for that kind of cruelty to happen when it when it when it happens on a more personal level. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting deal. I mean, one of the things I keep telling people is in Texas, you know, a third of all the children are immigrants or children of immigrants in Houston itself. Half of all the children here are children of immigrants or immigrants themselves. I mean, this is uh part of our future so right. paul thanks so much for the work that you guys are doing i love the work of the southern poverty law center um and so uh, please give our best to all your colleagues and thanks for being on the growing up in america program today 
Will do. Thanks so much for having us. All righty. Take care. You're listening to Growing Up in America, KPFT Pacifica Radio. Moving on with our very own Dr. Marcy Baez, the Chief Academic Performance Officer with Children at Risk Texas A Plus Challenge. Marcy, how are you today? I'm good. Hi, how are y'all? We are doing Excellent. great. Yeah, we're having a good conversation this show. So we're excited to hear about the school system of Houston and Texas beyond. Yeah, so Marcy, give us an idea. I mean, as schools try to turn themselves around. First off, I know that one of the things that you're really working on is bringing coaches into the schools and trying to uh, sort of have higher academic performance for kids. But do schools want to turn themselves around or is this something that uh, is there a lot of pressure? What's what's the deal around accountability and the need to turn schools around? Yes. Well, you know, like I always say, good schools don't just happen. Good schools are led by effective leadership who are ensuring that there are effective classroom teachers at every classroom. And all of that work is supported by the districts and by the central office and all all the support that they get. Um, but failing schools, you know, what are failing schools? Is it the test scores? Is it, you know, they don't, they don't just happen either, right? It's, we're looking at scores tied into TA accountability scores, um, high teacher and leader turnover, other reasons for failing schools are the lack of student engagement. Why is there a lack of student engagement? Um, I would argue that it's due to inconsistent teaching methods, right, which is where the coaching piece comes in. Uh, we want to keep, keep our teachers. It's hard work. We know that it's hard work. We want to keep our teachers and our leaders happy. Um, and oftentimes, even though districts and schools have instructional coaches and have effective teaching, they're, they're pulled away to do so many other things. Um, I mean, the role of instructional coaching in, in, in school transformation, it's, it serves as a positive change in failing schools because coaches work closely with teachers to understand their individual needs, their individual strengths, their individual challenges. And it's, you know, the difference between professional development and coaching is that professional development is something you go to and you might implement the the piece that makes the difference for us is that the coaches is the, the coaches are there to help you implement you know the strategies right. to help you be better or understand right. um and and be more of an accountability partner than almost like a personal trainer Right. Dr. Marcy, when we talk about great schools, we love to highlight and point to good leadership. And it does truly turn around the school. But thinking of if I walked in a school with a really strong leader, besides maybe some strong star scores on the data wall, what is the environment that you'd really feel? What impact does that leader have that's beyond a test score? That they care about me. (laughs) They care about what's happening to me. They care about what's happening to my colleagues. They care about what's happening to, you know, staff. Uh, The culture of the campus is huge. You know, we all have to be very conscientious of, somebody's calling me, sorry, um, of of the instructional coaching time and, and the time that we spend developing those relationships and fostering those relationships because, you know, when you talk to when you talk to teachers or you talk to leaders, it is very much uh, it becomes a well-oiled machine because there's an adult investment in the lives of kids mm-hmm. and what collectively they're doing to change or shift or foster that culture and keep growing that culture. I don't know if that made sense. Marcy, uh, one of the things that we're seeing in HISD, right? I mean, it's a big topic, the state takeover of HISD, and uh, you don't have to comment on that. But when we talk about the schools, you have Superintendent Miles coming in and sort of doing a lot of wholesale change. What is the 
What is the attitude going to be of teachers? I mean, for some from the outside, it may seem exciting. We're trying some new things. Internally, what is that like for teachers when when you have people coming and say, hey, we're going to make things way better and we're going to make big, huge changes? So it's always scary. Change is scary for everybody, students, young and old, uh, adult learners as well. So change is always, um, you know, it's, it's, it's fear of the unknown. Uh, I think that real... Uh, as clear as possible, communication is key. Um, you know, uh, if, again, if we're showing that we are communicating, we're being accountable, we're building those relationships, you know, we're being equitable, and then we're we're monitoring how are we doing. We're taking a temperature on how are you feeling, teacher? How are you feeling, principal? These are the things that, you know, and, and, and having a voice. You, If you have a voice and you're not sitting at the table, then um, – it makes it uh, a little less um, appealing to buy in, right? Yeah, so yeah. I think that, you know, being very clear and concise about what the expectations are and this is how we're going to do it and this is how we're going to support and how do you feel about it and how do you, you know, how do we all fit in and how can we make this work for everybody is just, it's key in, in making those changes. Awesome. Thinking about the A-plus coaches when they go into schools and help support those teachers and academic coaches on the ground, what are three common misconceptions you wish wish those outside of the school systems knew about teachers and what they're feeling right now? I mean, they work very, very hard. (laughs) Um, And they get up every morning and do this because they have – it's a vocation. I always say it's a vocation, not an occupation. Um, I think that a big misconception is, oh, they're off for the summer. I mean, right now, I can just tell you, they have been planning and working all summer long, getting into their classrooms, getting their lesson plans, working. And our coaches are right there alongside of them doing that work with them. It's, 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 a, it's a very supportive, very collaborative um, work, we'll say. Right. Um, you know, their school day does not end at 3.30. They're either doing, you know, other 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 things like planning and grading, much like that of a leader. You know, a leader is not, uh, is working in, in the schools, doing duty, working classrooms, being, you know, being in the work and, and being a peer to the work that's happening for kids inside the schools. But um, when we think about the understanding the actual instructional coaching piece, I think that Again, identifying where they are and taking them where they need to be in a safe learning environment because both young and old and whatever, certified, not certified, degreed, not degreed, um, everyone needs a safe learning environment to learn and grow and to be able to 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 understand that yeah. and grow from that and understand where they need to go and, and be open to the feedback and the accountability piece that comes on that uh, comes with that. You know, at the end of the day, it's about making a positive impact on student learning. And so, I mean, there are success stories that, you know, we have as instructional coaches. There are student success stories. There are, you know, and those are the pieces, you know, we need to celebrate those and, and continue growing. I, I love the idea that these are sort of like personal trainers, right? For co- for teachers, right? These yeah. coaches are in there to mm-hmm. make sure that teachers are doing the right things. And who doesn't need sort of support. a trainer and support to, to make sure you're doing the right things. And then we're, we're talking about our children and making sure that our children are successful. We want them to have the very best teachers and uh, having coaches available. So uh, I certainly applaud the great work that you and your team are doing, uh, Dr. Baez. And, um, uh, I hope to, we hope to hear more here on the show as <clears throat> we get going for and school school starts. What is it for a leaf next week? Is I that- know. I next know. Week? I was actually going to mm-hmm. ask cause I, I'll always point to teachers and leaders, but if there are any yeah. new budding teachers starting their first year listening, what is one piece of advice you would give to them? Yeah. What's your big piece of advice, Marcy? Um, Well, so I'm going to share something that somebody shared with me. The most important thing is be there. Make sure the kids are fed. Make sure the kids get there safely and get home safely. Um, And just have be open minded and be uh, in a in a growth mindset. We can't. You have to be uh, teachers. I guess number one, I, I feel like they're they're gymnasts. We're gymnasts. You have to be able to pivot and be flexible because. 
you know, again, the most important thing is let's let's take care of the students, young and old, um, when they're with us and when they're not with us. We serve, and that's why I speak about talking, I talk about staff, because we talk a lot about serving the whole child, and that is critical and understanding that. But the people that are on the front line, we need to understand and serve them academically grow them professional development development you know give them the professional development that actually is going to make an impact and support them through that and we have to support their well-being and you know that is what sustains teachers the whole child and the whole teacher Mm -hmm. dr marcia baez is over at children at risk with the texas a plus challenge she's leading that whole effort group of coaches going out to the schools, helping them be better, helping schools be better, helping our kids be successful. Dr. Marcy Baez, thanks for being on Growing Up in America. Thank you. Wishing everybody a happy 23-24. All right. Thank yeah. you. School year. It's already going. So it's like Christmas to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Merry Christmas. Oh, no. Happy <laughs> school year. Thank you very much, Thank Marcy. You, Dr. You're listening to Growing Up in America on KPFT Pacifica Radio. We'll come back with a little bit of data. All right, a little Beyonce for you today. It's we always have, so great. And she's always, about to be in town. Is she really? In September. Where does she, does she live in Houston? Does Beyonce live in Houston? Do you know? Um, no, I don't think so. Oh, I, I could yeah. be completely wrong Maybe if Brooklyn? any listener wants to call in and tell me. She's from Houston. But, yes, uh, she'll still claim us. She probably still us probably lives in Brooklyn, right? I mean, probably. That's sort of cool. She right? probably has many, many a home. <laughs> Around the United States. I'm guessing that's right. <laughs> I'm guessing that's right, Claire. You're listening to Growing Up in America here on KPFT. Uh, up next is our data of the day. Uh, Christine Thomas, the famous researcher. She's, uh, I think Christine's in Chicago today. Christine, how are you doing? I'm good. I am in Chicago. I also just finished uh, seeing Beyonce on her you know, U.S. tour. So oh, you, you saw her. Where, where did you see her? Where did you see and her? And Chicago and uh, Soldier Field, Chicago. Wow. Very. How was she, by the way? Not that this oh, is part amazing. of the date of the day. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's always priority to hear about Beyonce's wow. Yes. wow. You know, uh, Christine, as a Latina, Chicago is surprisingly, uh, I mean, I've always found ch- Chicago has quite a lot of diversity uh, and a lot of uh, a significant Latino population, huh? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, third world largest city in the U.S. It's um, very diverse, not just Latino, but black, Asian. Um, So the food is also just as diverse and amazing. I remember being in New York City and, you know, growing up in Puerto Rico, we could always find good Puerto Rican food in New York City, but not as much Mexican food. In Chicago, that was like the opposite, right? It was just a little little aside. Uh, Christine, so the number today, 49th, and I've not even looked at the notes, but I'm guessing that's Texas. Is it Texas? It is Texas. (laughs) It's uh, Texas ranking 49th in the country uh, in providing access to early Head Start programs. Wow. So they get about half of, uh, compared to the nation, half of eligible children have access to these um, early Head Start programs. What does that mean when we're 49th in early Head Start? It, it it certainly means that a lot of our kids that need a Head Start are not getting it. A lot of the kids that need quality early education so that they can perform well academically, it seems like it's a missed opportunity for federal money. Yeah, so I'll explain a little bit. Early Head Start is a federally funded program. So it serves pregnant women, infants, toddlers, and their caregivers with low incomes in a variety of formats. It's really center-based, home-based programs, um, and it's one of 11 effective policies and strategies proven by research to really positively impact prenatal to three outcomes. So there's strong causal studies. Um, that there's increased high, increased parental health, emotional well-being, nurturing, responsive, parent-child relationships. Um, and we also see that uh, children enrolled in early Head Start had a higher vocabulary skill at age two and three. Wow. And so it's almost ridiculous that we don't have more right. early education <laughs> or early access. Head Start, right? 
Yes. And, and, you know, there's no downside, right? Yeah. It's, you know, these, these families are in need. Um, There's obviously a big need in Texas when we see the number of low income families. Um, Yeah. There's no reason not to, not to seek this federal funding. Is it more so that it's not being sought? Is there loopholes or not loopholes? What is it? Jump ropes. I don't know the analogy right now, but barriers <laughs> for them to jump through. Barriers. Or how does it? Why aren't we providing it as much as we should through the federal program? Definitely, I think a lot of it. There is paperwork. Um, I think you know people are in child care centers specifically um, are struggling to stay open, um, and I think it's just the the ability to find these resources to apply. Um, and you know, it takes time. Well, and the other thing is we can't leave without saying this, right? Is that in Texas, this is a political red meat for the majority party, right? For the Republicans. They don't want to support Head Start. Saying that you support Head Start is like saying you would vote for a Democrat. And I think, and, and, and it's really, I mean, it's sort of this knee jerk reaction yeah. that Head Start must be the same as political indoctrination when indeed it is not. It's mm. just getting a head start on life. Is it the SEL component? Because I know that I, is polarizing. I don't even right think now. it's that. I think you just say head start and people say no. Shine. Yeah, it's just, uh, so I think that's part of it, Christine. So we're not going to make it easy. You know, we're not going to help. But in the end, what we need to realize, this is federal money to help kids get ahead, to help, you know, with 65% of the kids in Texas are coming from low-income families. What are we doing to help them get ahead? And we know we're doing a lot, right, Christine? But this is just another thing that, another piece of uh, bundle of money that we're leaving on the table. Yeah, definitely. I feel like I'm just getting on these soapboxes today, right? No, I'm <laughs> learning so much. I, I learn every day that we've polarized a new helpful a new, concept for new, children. New help. That's exactly right. Uh, yeah. Christine, do we have estimates? And I'm sorry, this is out of left field. Uh, do we have estimates how much money we've left on the table by not doing an, enough early head start in Texas? I I do not have that number. I do have that. You know, other states, I know that is, you know, flip state, they've, it's really about state legislation allocating these funds to implement and expand these early Head Start programs. Um, And so it just needs to be made a priority. Um, And so as, you know, we just had our session, um, we had a few bills in there. I think it's just to keep pushing our legislators to, to take action. Yeah, very good. Christine Thomas is the Senior Associate Director of the Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation at Children at Risk. She's up in Chicago, but normally she's based out of San Antonio. And uh, thank you, Christine, for the great work that you do. And uh, thanks for being on Growing Up in America today. Thank you. Bye. All right. Take care, Christine. You're listening to Growing Up in America on KPFT. are moving on even though they cut taylor swift's song transition to our summer intern summer sanders summer where you believe they did that to you i know it just broke my heart i was anticipating summer where are you calling in from today i am calling in today from houston perfect there she is houston Mm -hmm. so summer where do you go to college let's remind the audience where you go to college Absolutely. I am a full-time law student at Thurgood Marshall School of Law at Texas Southern University. Excellent. And where did you do undergrad, Summer? Mm -hmm. For undergrad, I actually started off at Agnes Scott College. Oh, yeah. Um, It's, yeah, yeah, a women's college in Decatur. And yes, yes. And then I transferred to Georgia State University, and that's where I finished. Very good. And tell us... um, as an intern, and specifically, I want sort of you know, going to law school, what made you decide that you wanted to go to law school, Summer? 
That is such a good question. I always felt the urge to go to law school. I've always been very interested in education policy, family law, juvenile law. And I actually was an educator before going to law school. So I taught for three years and I knew that I wanted to make another impact outside of the classroom. So it was always in the plan for me to go to law school. Yeah, we were just talking, speaking on being in the classroom and wanting to make a larger impact to our A-plus mm-hmm. performance officer. Um, and in that, I love speaking to directly to teachers and educators. What can you shine light on to any educator that might be in their first, second year, either starting to burn out or feeling like they're stuck in the four walls and wanting to make a greater impact? Mm, I love that. Um, my advice is definitely to remember your why. Every day you have to remember who you're there for and what you are doing and that, you know, you are going to be planting these seeds that you might not see the the fruit of for a while, but you are in the moment doing things for your students and um, planting those seeds. So just remember your why and that the work you're doing is so impactful. Summer, as a student Mm -hmm. who wanted to make a change and decided you're going to do it by going to law school and you're interning at Children at Risk, um, you probably also thought maybe maybe public policy school, maybe law school. What were some of the choices that you thought about when you thought about policy change as maybe a life goal? Right. Um, I did think about um, policy school. I thought about even uh, political science. Mm route maybe. Um, So I did do some research with that and I took some sociology courses while I was in undergrad and um, definitely tried to research that a bit. And I saw where for my skill set with research and the way that I do love to read a lot of cases and case studies that law school was the best route for me. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thinking about those that might be going into college or maybe a budding high school or thinking about it, what is some advice mm-hmm. you have um, if maybe as a senior in high school you were like, yes, I'm going to eventually run into education policy, but maybe not? How would you give them the best advice to they might have to pivot, but how to kind of reconcile where they are now? Right. Um, For that reconciliation, I would say definitely remain well-read. So stay in the know of what's going on and try to have those conversations with people around you if you can. Um, Engage in those debates and those kind of conversations where you're weighing pros and cons and sharing your thoughts and hearing what other people's thoughts are. And from there... Try and figure out what you can plan for, Um, maybe looking at a few different degree plans and where you'd like to be as well physically and geographically. Do you want to move? Where would you want to go to school? And are there any schools where there are professors that you'd love to work with and collaborate on a project with? Did you go to high school in Houston or Atlanta or where did you go to high school, Summer? I went to high school in Atlanta. I went to DeKalb School of the Arts. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. (laughs) And so for you, what is it like moving from Atlanta to Houston uh, and the two cities? You know, compare them a little bit for us. Okay. It definitely was a major transition, just moving 12 hours away in itself and being so far from the majority of my family. That was a little difficult. Um, But I did have experiences in undergrad where I was able to study abroad. So I was a little used to that independence factor of being just entirely on your own. Um, I really love Houston. I love Mm. the culture. The food is everything. (laughs) I I feel like Atlanta is kind of comparable, though, food-wise. It is. It is. There's good food. (laughs) But I feel like with Houston, there's always a new restaurant. Yeah. Like, all the time. And so it's really exciting to eat at different places. Like you find your favorites, but there's always going to be something new. Yeah. And yeah. Summer knows this. I lived in Atlanta for a while and I oh, loved, I, I loved Atlanta. Right. But mm-hmm. Houston's, Houston's way bigger. 
So just, <laughs> well, Louisiana, I will say, has some strong contenders for food, so I can't yeah, yeah. say so, that. Summer, final question for you today. Mm-hmm. What, what are we going to see Summer Sanders doing uh, three, five years from now? What do you hope we see Summer doing? I hope that we see me <laughs> doing something really big and positive and intentional for children in Texas and honestly, the nation at large, yeah. I really want to make some major changes for the children as well as my fellow educators. Wow. I feel like you're I, on the way there. Mm-hmm. I hope you're working at Children Thank at you. Risk. Yeah. I hope you're working at Children at Risk and co-hosting the radio show with Claire because you're fantastic. Yeah. On he the just radio. fired himself for you. That'll <laughs> never happen again. So Summer Sanders is one of the great interns. Uh, a legal interns, legal fellows for children at risk. And she's a student, a law student at Texas Southern University. Summer, thank awesome. you very much for being on the Growing Up in America program today. Thank you so much for having me. All righty. Thank you. We'll be right back with Linda Corchado, who is the head of the Children's Immigration Network. See what's going on down on the border. The prairie sky is wide and high. Deep in the heart of Texas, the coyotes wail along the trail. Deep in the heart of Texas, Claire. I know. I never knew that song till the radio. Till the real? Is that right? Yeah. And I didn't know the Texas Pledge till I started teaching. It was a lot here. I remember the first time. I think the first time I saw the Texas Pledge or heard it was I was at a school board meeting in Texas, mm-hmm. and like they love oh, the pledge. Oh, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, I, uh, I just think it's sort of odd. You it's don't sort have of just plagiarism of the United States Pledge, but you don't have this in any other state except no. for Texas, which is interesting. Linda Corchado is with us. She is the director of the Children's Immigration Network. She's out of El Paso, Texas. And uh, she leads uh, all of the immigration efforts for children at risk. Linda, I wanted to ask you today, I know you and I have been doing other interviews on this issue, but uh, the governor has decided to supersede the federal government in uh, sort of taking care of watching our borders, Uh, even though the federal government continues to do its job. But it does seem like maybe what we're doing on the borders is just a little bit more hurtful to children and families. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I'm thrilled about this uh, report that we're getting from the media about what's happening at with um, Operation Lone Star, because this information is not readily available to the public. Yeah. Um, so because of this investigative journalism, we're starting to understand more of how Operation Lone Star is being implemented across the board. And what we're seeing is very troubling. It's um, rejecting children, um, forcing them into uh, really difficult situations, pushing them back into the river, mm-hmm. denying them urgent humanitarian aid. You know, so this is an issue that the that has always been polarizing, um, but a situation where border security, a lot of um, you know, conservatives make a, make headway to ensure that our borders are safe. But you got to question when you hear this information and you see the reports, is that what we're really doing here? Are we keeping our borders safe right. by pushing children into harm's way? Yeah. Well, it's children, right? And then looking at this, I know it's a back and forth right now. What are some claims that Texas is saying that They're not in violation. And not only that, but again, this conversation with Texas and Florida, even if it's a losing battle, what implications does this have for immigration policy or conversations? Well, I mean, it it certainly has a chilling effect. Um, And and certainly one on border communities like in El Paso, where I live, um, where, you know, just the last few years, the Supreme Court has issued a lot of chilling decisions uh, just about the civil rights. Um, and, and human dignity, somebody could expect at the border, and, and it's basically nothing. Um, so we have, in in concert with these actions, very high rulings that that give leeway um, to protect the border. And so it really falls on our conscience: is is this is this what what we need to protect our, our borders? Um, so it certainly has a chilling effect, Claire, and, and a negative impact on border communities. Does it seem to be happening 
all across the border in Texas, you know, from Brownsville to El Paso, or is it happening in particular areas? Do you know, uh, Linda? At least in the reports that we're seeing, it, it seems to be in certain areas and more remote areas. Hmm. Um, you know, cities like El Paso are, are highly mobilized. We have many government agencies here, law enforcement agencies that do their job pretty well and, and don't need um, to be supplanted by, you know, the, the efforts from Lone Star, Operation Lone Star. So we're not seeing too much of it here, but, you know, Harking back on my comments earlier, we also don't know. There's not a lot of transparency about what's going on. Um, but, you know, I think what's interesting is when you see these actions in conjunction with other news happening nationally, it's it's sort of conflating the issues in a way that, you know, could be another perfect storm, which happens all the time in immigration. Um, But what I'm alluding to is, you know, a recent ACLU victory this week um, that successfully challenged uh, Biden's asylum ban. Um, And what we're seeing now is that with that successful challenge, we might start seeing more uh, numbers spike along the border. So now we know there are very dangerous practices that are happening thanks to Operation Lone Star, and we may start seeing an uptick in numbers. So this puts us in a really difficult predicament. It puts families in danger, too, and children in danger, right? When we're putting the razor wire along the border and we're putting these uh, little drowning devices in the middle of the the river, uh, and then because of this court case, we may indeed have this larger number of children and families it's it it is a a bad perfect storm yeah it's it is a very bad perfect storm i think what else i'm i'm keeping an eye on is i actually just volunteered to support uh, some pro bono work um for the program firm which um places immigrant families into this expedited process where families have about six days to pass their asylum interview. Mm. Um, and we're hearing that uh, the, this is expanding to Houston. So now it's possible that more um, migrant families may be moving to Houston for this interview itself um, and requiring much more legal support to get them through that process. So this just always happens in, in immigration law. There's just so many moving parts. And what we see is the the most harmful impact is on families and children. Yeah. How much, Linda, do you think their argument, the governor's argument, holds weight? I know that as soon as the Justice Department filed the lawsuit, um, and it's, it's blatant inhumanity, but he essentially said, quote, see you in court. And so it seems pretty confident. But do we think that this is going to be a quick winning battle like ACLU or are we going to see this dragged out? And then moreover, how is this going to keep the chilling effect on immigration and conversations in Texas? Right. Well, you know, I think there, there's some interesting things to look at, right? Like you see the, the SCOTUS, the Supreme court ruling on abortion, which basically says states, this is your deal. You figure it out. And then you see another recent decision where they deferred with the Biden administration and they said, you know what, the federal government um, has the ultimate discretion on immigration law. So now this is an issue that that kind of puts all of that into play. How much is the Supreme Court willing to defer to the states and their ability to protect their own borders? And how much will they say, you know, the federal government precedes all other entities? So the Supreme Court, it's very difficult to, to understand their logic sometimes. Um, but, you know, knowing past decisions, it, it, it will be certainly interesting to see how this plays out. This whole idea of see you in court, Mr. President, it seems like it's just primed for publicity, right? right. I mean, is this whole thing, I mean, you and I know the answer. Is this whole thing <laughs> a big publicity stunt? I mean, is it all about drawing attention to Texas and to the governor and to his credentials in terms of being a Republican? Right. I mean, it's almost like which which will we prefer, you know, sending kids into danger to Governor Abbott's approach or Governor DeSantis' approach, which, which criminalizes families in Florida? 
Um, so yes, of course it's a stunt, but you know, advocates like myself who, who are really just laser focused on the integrity of our communities and keeping our immigrant families together. Um, I hope that we can start seeing that some of these policies just are nonsensical. They're costly. They hurt our communities, our schools, and maybe it's time to, to be a little more rational with our approaches. You know, Linda, a final question here is uh, uh, last week we did the legislative debriefing. You know, how did the the legislative session go in Texas? And uh, we had $33 billion in surplus, which we decided to use primarily for property tax and not to do in education and early education and certainly not in mental health. But we did find a lot of money to put these red beach balls on the river and to buy all this razor wire and to support uh, law enforcement from other municipalities to go to the border. Mm -hmm. And Linda, you and I go to the border, you live on the border. And when I go down there, you see a lot of uh, law enforcement and and it's almost like this is like a little, they're not really doing a lot, right? I mean, it's just a show, isn't it? They're not doing a lot, um, and what they are doing is very harmful, and it comes at a cost when that money could be used to invest in our school systems and institutions that, that certainly need more financial support in our state. Um, so certainly not, and, and I think a lot of communities are seeing that more um, as our populations diversify in Texas. We need more support. We need to be able to sustain our growth, yeah. and this isn't doing it. Linda Corchado is the director of the Children's Immigration Network for Children at Risk. She's out of El Paso, Texas. Thank you, Linda, very much for all the great work that you do on the immigration front. And thanks for being a part of Growing Up in America. Thank you. Very good. Well, what a show, huh? It was a good one. Yeah. I mean, they're always very, great. They're always really, really good. And uh, we, next up, right, in the next five minutes, R&R. You ready for some R&R? Because I'm ready for some R&R. KPFT has R&R, so yeah. uh, we'll do that. And I also want to thank Susan Darrow, who does a Border Radio beforehand. Yeah. Uh, great lead-ins, and she does a great job. So we're so happy to be part of uh, children of uh, KPFT. <laughs> and Children at Risk. <laughs> children at Risk. Both. We love both. We love both. <laughs> and I know that you guys continue to support us and to support uh community radio so we'll look forward to that as as we get into the pledge season which will be coming soon for claire dutre i'm bob sanborn we'll see you next time here on growing up in america i hopped up the plane at lax with a dream my cardigan welcome to the land of fame access Am I gonna fit in? Jumped in the camp, here I am for the first time. Look to my right and I see the Hollywood sign. This is all so crazy. Everybody seems so famous. My tummy's turning and I'm feeling kinda homesick. Too much pressure and I'm nervous. That's when the taxi man turned on the radio. And the Jay-Z song was on. And the Jay-Z song was on. And the Jay-Z Everybody, this is Big Kev, and don't forget to tune in Tuesday mornings, 3 to 5 a.m., right here on KPFT for the Roots Rock Revolution program. Because I don't even know what I'm going to play, but I guarantee we'll have a good time together. So check us out Tuesday mornings, 3 to 5 a.m., KPFT, Houston. If you came across someone struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? Would you notice an eight-year-old girl who's not not excited excited for for summer summer break because she may not be having lunch again until September? Or a war veteran who's having a hard time landing landing a job and getting back on his feet? I am the one in eight Americans who struggle with hunger. I I am am hunger hunger in America. America. Hunger can be hard to recognize. Learn why at IamHungerInAmerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Put a frog in boiling water and it'll jump right out. But put a frog in cool water and slowly heat it up, that frog will boil. 
As veterans, we tell ourselves the lie that we can handle anything. We let the water boil. You are not a frog. If you or a veteran you know needs support, don't wait. Reach out. Find resources at va.gov reach. That's va.gov reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. Hey, y'all. Joel Palope Hendricks, and you're tuned in to KPFT, Houston's 90.1 FM. 